0: This morning's sermon text is from the Gospel of John, chapter 18. I'll be reading John 18:33 through 40. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, "Are you the king of the Jews?" Jesus answered, "Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me?" So you are a king, Jesus answered. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber.
1: Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the table of the Lord. We thank you for the body that was broken for us. We thank you for the blood that was spilled for us. Lord, as I told you when I was sitting there praying, as I thought of myself, one word was coming to my mind, and that was unworthy. And as I thought of you, one word was coming to my mind, and that was worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. And I'm so deeply grateful, Father, that in your mercy... You were willing to take your worthiness and to cover over our unworthiness. I'm so grateful that you were willing to bring us to yourself through the body and blood of Jesus Christ so that we could have life in you and be reconciled to you and know you and be with you forever. I'm so deeply grateful, Father, and I pray that your mercy would continue to spread abroad as we now look more deeply into your word in a particular section. Father, I pray that you would give us sight I pray that you would give us insight. I pray that you would minister to your people by your Holy Spirit. Father, sometimes you minister in subtle ways and sometimes in obvious ways, but I pray that you would move among us in power today. And I pray, Father, for those who could not be here this morning. I heard the stories of many who are sick this morning who will listen to this message online. I pray for you too. I pray that as you hear this message wherever you are, I pray that God will bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you as you hear the word of God preached and take it deep into your heart. Oh, Father, please come and move in our midst, I pray. And for what you will do, I give you my thanks and my praise. Amen. Over the last 2,000 years, people have tried to make Jesus to be who they want him to be. Over the last 2,000 years, people have tried to pressed Jesus into various molds to fit various agendas and various purposes. Some have had evil intentions because they have seen Jesus as an enemy. They have seen him as an obstacle to their agenda. And therefore, they have determined that he really needs to be destroyed and removed. They have determined that the only way for them to go forward is to get rid of this man. And so they have painted him over the centuries as a criminal or as a delusional mystic. Or some, this is a popular theory in our days, it's had its time throughout the centuries. Some have actually said that Jesus never claimed to be God, he never claimed to be the Messiah, but it was later followers who made him into be these things. I remember years ago a documentary on PBS called From Jesus to Messiah. And the whole point of the documentary was to say that other people made him into this. And the reason people argue that way is because they're trying to destroy Christ. They're trying to remove him. They are trying to dismiss him. They see him as a problem, as an obstacle in their way. There is no truth to what they're saying. But they make the argument nonetheless because they have this view of Jesus. Others simply see Jesus as inconvenient or they find themselves in a situation where they simply have to deal with him. There's nothing they can do to avoid it. They're not so much against him, but they can't get around him. And so they find ways to paint him as a good teacher. They find ways to say that he is a prophet, but just one among many. They find ways to say kind things about him, but essentially to, to dismiss him. And the truth of the matter is that even those of us who have loved Jesus throughout the last 2,000 years, if we're being honest with ourselves, we also tend to press him into our preconceived molds, do we not? We tend to make God into our own image, We tend to try to take this God who is so great, as Jordan said in his communion devotional, part of the reason is because God is just simply so great and his mercy is so vast that it's really truly impossible to take it in. And so to make God comprehensible, to make him understandable, we tend to put him into categories that make sense to us. Sometimes even those who believe in him put him into categories that work for us because the truth is we love certain parts of our lives. We love certain rebellious things that are happening in our hearts and we don't want to let them go. And so we find ways to mold Jesus into the kindest Savior that's convenient for us. The truth is we all tend to do this to the Lord. But no matter how many people have tried to make Jesus into who they want him to be, The truth of the matter is that Jesus is who he is and he's always gonna be who he is and he lives to bear witness to the truth of who he is and he will bear witness to the truth of who he is until all persons and things take their proper place in heaven and on earth. He will bear witness to the truth of who he is until all persons and things fundamentally bow down before him and give him the praise that he is due as God. He will bear witness to the truth of who he is until that great day when the Father exalts him above every name and every single knee bows in heaven and on earth. And every single tongue confesses in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, this is the destiny of creation. This is where it's all leading. And between now and then, Jesus Christ will continue to bear witness to the truth until all things come into conformity with him. Having arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and having tried him before Annas, the former high priest of Israel, and then Caiaphas and the council of of Israel, having given him an informal trial and then a formal trial before the Jews, the Jewish leaders now led him before the Roman governor of Israel, a man named Pontius Pilate. It was early in the morning. It was about 5 a.m., And since the Jews didn't want to defile themselves by entering into Pilate's residence and coming into contact with things that the Bible declared unclean, Pilate went out to them, and he began the proceedings by asking a very simple but important question. He said, what accusations do you bring against this man? As I mentioned last week, this was not an informal conversation. Pilate was asking them to file their charges against Jesus. This was a formal civil trial, before the governor of the land. This was a legal proceeding. And he's saying, make your charges clear. The Jews, however, could not uh, bring any specific accusation against him. All that they could really muster was to say that he was a habitual criminal. They tried to charge him with a, a general crime. But Pilate was not persuaded by this. And so he told them to go and take Jesus and to judge them by their own law, which forced them to admit that they had already judged him by their law. They had found him worthy of death and they wanted Pilate to do their dirty work. They wanted him to put Jesus to death. Pilate was a, an insightful man. I would not say he was a good man. If any of you have studied this portion of human history, you will see that he was in many ways a brutal man, but he wasn't stupid. I'll tell you that much. And he could see right through their schemes. He could see exactly what they were doing. He could easily have dismissed the case right there. He could easily have released Jesus, but instead he chose to go back into his residence and summon Jesus to himself for now what was essentially a private interrogation. It's hard to say why Pilate decided to handle things this way. He may have been protecting political alliances that he had with the Jews, He may have actually been concerned that Jesus was gonna lead a a rebellion against the the Roman uh, interests in that area. Those kind of rebellions had been rising up one after another, so it's possible that he was concerned about that. It's also possible that he was just curious about this man who had become so famous and had gained such a massive following in such a short period of time. It's really hard to say what was on his mind, but whatever his reasons, Pilate did summon Jesus into his residence And I want to say again to you what I said last week. As soon as Jesus entered into the residence of Pilate, he became ceremonially unclean. That means in the, in the, uh, the eyes of the Jewish law, Jesus was now no longer able to take part of the Passover and all of the feasts that went along with it. He was no longer allowed to come into the temple of the Lord. He was no longer allowed to approach that place where the glory of God manifests in the midst of Israel. He essentially disqualified himself from the worship life of Israel by coming into contact with certain things inside of a Gentile home. This is so ironic because the Jewish leaders were dead set against allowing that to happen to them and yet they made themselves radically clean by trying to commit murder, by trying to take the life of an innocent man and by trying to marshal the forces of the state of Rome to do their dirty work. They were powerfully, profoundly unclean. Jesus, on the other hand, willingly submitted himself to becoming ceremonially unclean so that he could give his life on the cross, so that he could die for our sins, so that he could be buried in the ground that he created so that he could be raised again from the dead, so that he could be ascended to the right hand of the Father, so that he could be enthroned as the King of kings and Lord of lords and the great high priest forever and ever, so that whoever looks to him may not perish, but be profoundly and eternally clean and forever reconciled to God. He who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, the beauty, oh, the irony of the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ in this scene. When Pilate came face to face with Jesus, he got right to the point. He wasted no time and he asked what really was the central question. He said, Jesus, are you the King of the Jews? Now, if you're just reading the Gospel of John, this seems like a bit of an odd question because John doesn't mention that the Jews ever accused him of that. But you have to remember that John is writing in supplement to the other Gospels. He has the other Gospels in mind. He knows that all of the other Gospels record something that I'll read from you from Luke's Gospel, where the Jews, when they brought Jesus before Pilate, did in fact say this. They said to Pilate, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So do you hear what they're saying? They are talking to a powerful political figure in the government of Rome, and they're saying, listen, here's what this guy did. He told us not to pay our taxes because he was gonna rise up and deliver our people from you, and he was gonna become your king. In other words, they're charging him with sedition. If you'll think this through, they're still not making a very uh, clear charge against Jesus. There's still so much ambiguity in what they're saying. And besides that, they brought no proof of it, right? They made the claim, but they actually brought no proof, which is why I think John just gets to the point and says, listen, they didn't have much to say before Pilate, but at least this helps us understand why Pilate would say, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And besides this, we have to keep a couple other things in mind. Pilate knew of Jesus. He surely knew about Jesus for the last several years, When Jesus came onto the scene, beloved, he exploded onto the scene. His following did not sort of ramp up slowly but surely. When John the Baptist, the most famous man in the nation of Israel, pointed at Jesus and said, it's not me, it's him, Jesus at a human level became instantly famous in the land of Israel. People began to follow him in droves. Everywhere he went, crowds and crowds and crowds of people followed him. Trust me, Pilate knew about this guy. He may not have known a lot about him, he may not have understood him, but surely Pilate had him on his radar. And because there were so many people who rose up in this day to lead rebellions against Rome, surely Pilate wondered, what are his intentions? What is he up to? What is his ultimate goal? And and then another thing, Just several days before this scene, remember, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and then he walked into the city of Jerusalem to the praise of thousands of people who were lauding him as the king, and he accepted their praise. Pilate may not have heard it with his own ears, but trust me, he heard about this. And so we shouldn't be surprised that on the night when Jesus was arrested, it was Pilate himself who said, Yes, take a couple hundred Roman soldiers and go arrest this guy in a garden by night. And then, yes, I will grant you an early trial at 5 a.m. in the morning. He would not have done that if he didn't see Jesus as some sort of threat. It's not for nothing that Pilate asked this question, and it is the key question. It just gets right to the heart of the point. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered with a question of his own, and I don't think he was playing games here. He's not just being rhetorical. Jesus has a reason for asking this question. He says to Pilate, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say this to you about me? Jesus wanted to know if Pilate's interests were about the Roman government, if Pilate himself was concerned about Jesus, or if Pilate was simply following up on accusations that had been made about him by the Jews. In other words, does this have to do with my trial, or is this now about me and you? What's going on here? Why, why am I in your private residence being privately interrogated? Why is this happening? It's a legitimate question. And Pilate answers pretty sarcastically, pretty powerfully, and he's pretty clear with what he says. He says, am I a Jew? Are you kidding me? Am I a Jew? It's your own nation." It's your very chief priest, the leaders of your people who have handed you over to me. The word there means to betray. It's the same word used of Judas. They betrayed you to me. What do you think we're doing here? We're here because of that. We're not here because of me. If I wanted to know something about you, I would have brought you to myself in some other context. We're here because of what's happening in your nation. And then, then he asked Jesus the question that the Jews seemed unable to answer. And he said, what? exactly is it that you have done? What have you done? As I thought this over this week, it occurred to me that Jesus pretty much could have ended the whole situation right here by just saying nothing. I have done nothing worthy of a charge. He could easily have got himself out of trouble and probably found a way to leave the scene, but instead he, re- he remained silent about that particular question. And what he chose to do was to make a pretty profound statement about himself and about his kingdom that I think still has so much import for us today. Verse 36, Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, handed over to the Jews, betrayed to the Jews, But my kingdom is not from this world. Now if you think this through, since Jesus states two times that he has a kingdom, he at least implies that he's a king, doesn't he? You can't have a kingdom if you're not a king or some sort of sovereign. But still the question remains, why didn't he just come out plainly and say, yes, I am a king? Or why did he not come out plainly and say, yes, I am the king of the Jews? Why did he not do that? We'll come back to that in a second, but for now, we can say that what he chose to emphasize instead is that his kingdom is neither of this world or from this world. This is an important point. Evangelicals, listen to this. Jesus Christ's kingdom is not of this world. It is not from this world. It did not originate in the earth. It is not beholden to the kingdoms of this earth, not even the United States. The Christian flag and the American flag are not one thing. They are two different things. The kingdom of God is not of this earth. This is a profoundly important point in every single kingdom, in every single place on this earth throughout history. And since he said this twice, it is clearly the point that he wanted to emphasize. Yes, I have a kingdom, but it's not the kind of kingdom that you're thinking of. But since his Words do imply that he's a king. Pilate asked the obvious question. He said, so you are a king, huh? It's possible to translate this as a statement. So you're a king. But either way, it really comes out to be the same thing. Pilate's saying, really? So now you've admitted it, you're a king. But here's what Jesus said. He said, well, you say that I'm a king. There are some translations that take a little bit more license with how they put things into English that I think capture this pretty well when they translate this as saying, well, those are your words, they're not my words. It's you that says that I am a king. And then Jesus uh, continues. He says, for this very purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So I wanna come back to this question. Why is Jesus so reluctant to just say, yes, I'm a king? Why won't he just say it? Why is Jesus reluctant to say, yes, I am the king of the Jews. I am the Messiah they've been waiting for for centuries of time. I'm the one who came to fulfill so many prophecies. Why doesn't he just say, yes, I'm a king. Now, Pilate, let me explain this to you. Some have suggested that Jesus was hesitant to do this because if he admitted in any way to being a king, He would actually open himself up to a charge of sedition against the Roman state, and that he could be actually tried and convicted as an actual criminal, and put to death as an actual criminal. Some would suggest that he wanted to avoid that. Not that he was trying to avoid death, but he didn't want to die on those terms. And while while that's possible, I think that there's another answer that gets us closer to the heart of what's happening in this part of Jesus' story, and brings us really near to the heart of what his kingdom is all about. It is true to say that Jesus is a king. He is a king. Amen? It is true to say that Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews. That that is actually a fact. However, Jesus Christ is so much more than just a king and so much more than the king of the Jews, especially in the sense that it would have been understood that for him to accept this title on the Jews' terms or on Pilate's terms would completely obscure who he actually is. This, this discussion's not really so much about the title, it's about what's being meant and implied by the title. Jesus was not willing to be pressed into the mold of the enemies who wanted to destroy him or the government who just had to figure out a way to deal with him. He would not accept their descriptions of him on their terms. He would not. Jesus was a man, and he was the ultimately innocent man at that, but he was and is so much more than a man. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus Christ is identified as God, and sometimes he is even linked with the sacred name of God, Yahweh. And what I mean is that sometimes the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament and say, this is about Jesus. You go back to that Old Testament passage, like for instance, when the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 104, and you read, Psalm 104, and the only name that's used there for God is Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. And the writer of Hebrews says, that's Jesus. They are identifying him without hesitation and with with complete clarity as God. Again, Jesus was a man, but he was so much more than a man. And the name Yahweh describes him even as it describes God the Father, even as it describes God the Holy Spirit. And what is true of one of them as God, as Yahweh, is then true of them all. So with this in mind, the Old Testament repeatedly refers to Yahweh as the Lord of hosts. You've heard this name before for God? The Lord of hosts. About 240 times God is called that. In Hebrew, it's, it, the word for host is Sabaoth. It's not Sabbath, but Sabaoth. So the, the, this word host doesn't mean a whole lot to us. And I wanna just take a couple minutes and explain this to you because I think this is gonna help us understand why Jesus wouldn't accept the title of king on their terms. When you look up so many of these texts where God is called the Lord of hosts, you see four distinct categories where God shows sovereignty over creation. First of all, the Bible says that, the, that Yahweh is the Lord of, of, over the hosts of heaven, and in this case, hosts of heaven refers to the moon, to the stars, to everything in creation. So we could say that when it says God, Yahweh is the Lord of hosts, it just means that he is the great sovereign over everything that is, is created and that ever will be created. Second thing, the Bible sometimes says that Yahweh is the Lord over the hosts of heaven, now meaning the angels and even the rebellious angels who rose up against God, Satan and those who followed him. So Jesus Christ is Lord not, over, not only over all of creation, but he's Lord over every being in the heavenly places. He sits high above every rule, high above every authority. Third thing, the Bible sometimes says that the Lord is, is the Lord of the hosts of Israel meaning the armies of Israel and all the people of Israel. He is the Lord over the, the nation of the Jews, which is why it's proper in some sense to call him the king of the Jews. But then fourth, the Bible clearly says that Yahweh is the Lord of the hosts of all the nations. He is the Lord of the, all of the armies and all of the peoples of the earth. He is Lord of all. Since Yahweh is Lord over all creation, over all heavenly beings and spiritual beings, over all of his chosen people, and even over all the nations of the earth, it is no wonder that David writes this in Psalm twenty-four ten. He says that the Lord of hosts is the king of glory. He is the king who is glorious, and he is the king who reigns over all that is glorious. Yahweh is no tribal God. He is no small God. Rather, Yahweh is the unrivaled ruler of all persons and things that exist or have ever existed or ever will exist. And since Jesus is Yahweh, beloved, he is very great. And because he is very great, he is called not by one name, but by many, many names. There are probably, depending on how you count, well over a 100 names for Jesus. Let me just read to you a few of them. The Bible says plainly, that Jesus Christ is the Almighty One. I don't know how more plain you could be about saying that he is God, and that's in the New Testament, by the way. It says that he is the great I Am. It says that he is the very word of God. It says that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It says that he is the beloved Son of God. It says that he is the Son of Man. It says that he is Emmanuel, God with us. It says that he is the light of the world. It says that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and when he roars, Satan trembles. It says that he is the long-awaited Messiah. It says that he is the bridegroom of the bride, his church. It says that he is the head of the church. It says that he is the author and perfecter of our faith, That he is the Lamb of God, the risen Lord, the resurrection and the life. It says that he is the way and the truth and the life. It says that he is the true vine. It says that he is the redeemer of all who look to him by faith. He is the good shepherd of the sheep. He is the advocate of all who look to him in faith. It says that he is the great high priest. He is the solid rock upon which we stand. It says that he is the wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It says that he is the King of all kings. He is the Lord over all lords. It says that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Beloved, it is true to say that Jesus is a king. And it's true to say that Jesus is, in fact, the king of the Jews. But he is so much more than an earthly king, especially understood in earthly terms, that he simply would not allow himself to be pressed into the mold of enemies who wanted to destroy him, or secular people, governments, who needed to deal with him in some way or other. And since this was the case, Jesus shifted the conversation from his title to his purpose. This was not a small thing that he did. He said, you're the one that says I'm a king, but now here's what I wanna talk about. Here's why I came into the world. This is actually my purpose. And you can look again in verse 37. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. This is why I exist on the face of the earth, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Beloved, I don't know what you think about Jesus and why he came into the world, but here's one way that he explained himself, that he described his mission on the earth. He came to bear witness to the truth of who God is. He came to bear witness to the truth of who human beings are in our fallenness and in our sinfulness and in our hopelessness. He came to bear witness to the truth of the wrath of God that is coming upon everybody who will not repent and on the mercy of God that is going to be lavished upon everyone who will look to Jesus in faith and repent of their sins. He came to bear witness about the truth of Israel, their history, their state, their destiny. He came to bear witness about the destiny of all the nations and the purposes of God and the earth. He came to bear witness to the truth about many things. And the way he did that was threefold. There are three ways that Jesus bore witness to the truth, and that I think he's still bearing witness to the truth right now, even right in this room, right this moment. Jesus bears witness to the truth by his words. He bears witness to the truth by his works. He bears witness to the truth, most importantly, by his very being. Every single thing Jesus ever said was a witness to the truth. Think about the words that come out of your mouth. Think about how careless you are sometimes with your words. The things that you're thinking about, the things that that pour out of you. Think about the fact that every single word that ever came out of the mouth of Jesus was a witness to the truth of God. Stunning. And also, everything Jesus ever did was a witness to the truth. Nothing was without meaning. Nothing was without relation to God. Everything he did was meant to reveal God by pointing to God and witnessing about God and everything related to God. And finally and again, I say most profoundly, his very being was a witness to the truth. And the reason I say that is because, unlike any of the rest of us, Jesus bore witness to the truth and continues to bear witness to the truth as the one who is the truth, Jesus is not just someone who understands truth or who knows how to articulate truth or who is determined to live by truth. He actually is the embodiment of the truth. He is the truth. He bears witness to God as one who is God, which is why he said this to his disciples in the upper room. You'll probably remember this. Jesus said, Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Imagine saying that about yourself. Imagine saying to anybody on the earth, look at me, you're looking at God. That's a stunning thing to say. Jesus is saying, my very being witnesses to the truth and the glory of God. How can you say, Philip, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. This is the nature of my being. I am one with God the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. All my words come from the Father and testify about the Father. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. The Father through me is revealing himself as I work in the world. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe the works that I do. If you can't believe the words, if you can't just believe me, then at least look to the works. Everything Jesus said and did and was on this earth was a testimony to the truth. And because that was true, he had a very unusual confidence in himself. As he carried about his ministry, I promise you there was never a day in his life, not even a moment where he wondered, is this thing gonna work? Is the movement gonna happen? Are people gonna pay attention? Are they gonna listen to me? Are they gonna come and follow me? Jesus had a deep and profound and calm confidence That when he spoke, all who were appointed to eternal life would believe. When he spoke, all who were appointed to eternal life would turn and follow him. He knew that this was true. And so he had said earlier, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That's what he said to Pilate. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. As he had said earlier, all that the Father gives me will come to me. This was his confidence, beloved. There was no question in his mind as to whether people will come and believe in him, no question whatsoever. All that the Father has given me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And again Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He was profoundly confident, beloved, that when he went out into the world and spoke the Father's words and did the Father's will and expressed himself in the world as one who was one with the Father, that it was gonna work. Everyone who belonged to God would come to him. That's still true today. That's still true in this room. The people who have ears to hear the word of God today, that is a witness that you belong to your heavenly Father. Now obviously, the depth of Jesus' words were lost on Pilate, but he did ask an important question and I think a key question. He said, if truth is so important, then what is truth? It's possible that Pilate asked this as a sarcastic question, there are some commentators who think he's actually being sarcastic, that he's kinda mocking Jesus, basically saying, what you're saying is making no sense, so what is truth? but I tend to think that Pilate was sincere. If you look in your Bibles at chapter 19, verse eight, you'll see there that when Pilate heard that Jesus was making himself out to be the son of God, as the Jews had said, it says that Pilate feared him even more, even more. He was even more afraid of Jesus. Those words, even more, showed me that before that moment, there was already a kind of reverential fear and a kind of respect in his heart for Jesus, and so I tend to think, that when he asked Jesus this key question, what is truth, that he was sincere. Now if he had more insight, he would have asked a better question. You know what the right question to ask here would have been? Who is truth? Not what is truth, who is truth? The entire history of Western philosophy is built around this question, what is truth? But they missed the point. Truth is not merely ideas, and it's not merely about intellectual properties and logic and all that. That plays its part, but fundamentally, truth is a person. Truth is Yahweh. Truth is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If Pilate would have had discernment in this moment, if he would have heard the Father's voice, he would have asked the question, who is truth? And in my mind's eye, I think this is why Jesus was silent. He didn't answer the question. You notice this? Jordan, you said earlier, Jesus never exaggerates. I could not agree more with that. Also, Jesus never remains silent without a purpose. There's a purpose here. What I see happening is Pilate is looking at him and says, what is truth? And Jesus just looks him dead in the eyes and doesn't say a word. As if to say, you're looking at it. You're looking at him. It was, in a way, Jesus' way of saying, I am the truth. And if Pilate had ears to hear, he would have heard. I don't know what happened in Pilate's heart. All I know is that at that moment he turned around and walked away. I don't know what that silence meant to him. I don't know how much it haunted him and stayed with him. We'll talk about that more in the next week or two. But I do know that at this point he turned and walked away. He went back outside to the Jews and he made a legal declaration. Understand, this is not a casual conversation. He made a legal declaration as a man who had power to do such things. He said, I find no guilt in him. In other words, I don't find any basis to charge him for anything. But Pilate knew that the Jews wanted Jesus dead. He knew that they had gone to great lengths to make this happen. And I think that he probably wanted them to help them save face before Israel. I think he wanted to give them a way out of killing Jesus without looking stupid in front of their people. And so he reminded them that every year for the Passover, they would release a prisoner. This was a way that they had of expressing the freedom of God's mercy in their lives. This was a way of them remembering what God had done and releasing them from the hand of Pharaoh. They would release a prisoner who was rightfully charged as guilty as a way of worshiping God and reminding themselves of the mercy of God in their midst. So Pilate reminded them of that and then said, I do think now sarcastically, so... Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? You want your king back? This guy that you say is king, this guy you're playing so many games about, do you want him back? The Jewish leaders passionately shouted. In fact, the word can be translated, screamed in the right context. They said, not this man, but Barabbas. And John tells us, now Barabbas was a robber. That's the ESV. The word here for robber, can also mean an insurrectionist or a, a, a rebellious person, a revolutionary. It can refer to someone who is willing to rise up and use force to oppose uh, the state, and in this case, the Roman government. In other words, to put this in Jewish terms, John is basically telling us that, that Barabbas was a zealot. He was, he was not just a robber. He was not just a thief. He was actually an insurrectionist. He was actually guilty of what they were charging Jesus of. Mark is much more clear. Mark chapter 15, verse 7, it says that Barabbas was in prison for murder that he committed as part of a a rebellion. This is not in question. Get Get this out of your mind that Barabbas was a thief. He wasn't a thief. He was a revolutionary. He was an insurrectionist. He was willing to take up arms against the Roman government, and he did that. It wasn't just talk. He actually did it. And in the course of participating in a rebellion, he took somebody's life, maybe more than one person's life. He was actually guilty of this. And they said, release him. I hope you can see the irony here. The Jews demanded that Pilate release a man who was actually guilty of what they charged Jesus of doing. But they could not prove. They wanted to set a guilty man free and they wanted to condemn an ultimately innocent man. They wanted to lavish mercy on a murderer and they wanted to murder the God of mercy. They wanted to put to death the one who had come to set them free from their sin and its consequences, free from the world and its corrupting forces, free from the prince of the power of the air and all of his evil schemes against humanity, free from the wrath of God that is to come against all the sons of disobedience. So Jesus meant to do them such great mercy And they said, no, don't release him, release Barabbas. He is the one that we want. By the grace of God, their deliverer had come, but they sought to deliver their deliverer over to death. Pilate, of course, could not have understood the deeper irony of these things, but he did see the political irony. He got what they were doing. He saw how much these guys hated Jesus. He saw how much they were willing to do to make sure he got killed. They were actually willing to release a guilty man, guilty of a tremendously important crime in order to get Jesus. And I think because he saw the depth of what they were willing to do, he had to pause and think about what he was gonna do. And that's the question that chapter 18 leaves us with. What is Pilate gonna do? We're gonna consider that question next week. But for now, I wanna come back to what I said in the beginning. I wanna reiterate what I said with more detail. Because while the circumstances have changed, I think really so much remains the same in our day, beloved. To this day, there are some people in our land and all throughout the world, in fact, who hate Jesus and who see him as a problem, and they want to destroy him. They're out to destroy him, to get him out of their way. They will make him to be whatever they need to make him to be in order to push him to the side. And they will use even the language and the categories of the Bible to persuade people of their opinion and against the Bible's opinion. They want to say that they are the, bear, the bearers of truth. They are the, the witnesses of truth and that the Bible is not and that the historical claims about Jesus are not and that the theology of conservative Christians are not. For example, I spoke last week about this and I'm gonna speak about it again because I think it's a current threat to the body of Christ in our land. I think of so-called liberal Christians who will take the name of God on their lips and use it to advance their agenda when the truth of the matter is that they long ago rejected the word of God. And I want you to understand that the roots of current liberal Christianity are very deep, they're very old, The the current forms of liberal Christianity go at least back to the early 1700s with the work of a guy, get ready for this, you gotta be a scholar if this is your name, Friedrich Daniel Ernst Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher was a liberal who basically sought to undermine the Bible in many, many ways. He put the Bible under critical tests that were invented by men, and the German tradition from Schleiermacher forward has just advanced that way of thinking from then to now. Liberal Christianity is the child of German scholarship. It is. Long ago, they rejected the Bible as the word of God. Long ago. Long ago, they rejected the God of the Bible as anything that's actually real. Long ago, they rejected the Jesus of the Bible as a person who is actually real. Long ago, they rejected Judeo-Christian ethics and the way that those things are applied to Western society. The truth is they have a radical social agenda And they see biblical theology and conservative Christians as the primary obstacle to their agenda. I told you last week, and I'm gonna tell you again, I'm not just speaking from nothing. I spent four years studying in Berkeley, California with liberal theologians. I know what I'm talking about. And if you want me to point you in the direction of some things that you can read to understand what I'm saying, I'm willing to do that. But really, when you put it all down, boil it all down, it's really very simple. They have an agenda. Jesus is very inconvenient. We gotta remove him. And the reason I think about them when I think about what the Jews did to Jesus is because like the Jews, they would take the name of God on their lips while their hearts were far from him. And so rather than submitting to who God is, they use God to get what they want. Rather than doing his will, they use him to enact their will. But even as Jesus would not be pressed into the mold of those particular Jewish leaders. He will not be pressed into the mold of people who are trying to do the same basic thing to him today. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, and as one who is truth, he will continue to bear witness to the truth of who he is until every knee bows and every tongue confesses. That is going to happen. He will cause people simply through the power of his being and the mercy of his heart to bow down and acknowledge who he is. And even as he did with the Jews, he will use some of the schemes of those who are against him to save them. What I'm trying to say, and I'm certainly not saying very well, but what I'm trying to say is that there are two things we have to keep in balance here and in check here. There is no need for us to minimize the hatred of liberal Christians toward the biblical Jesus and to use language that does that. There's no need to do that. We need to speak the truth, but then we also need to speak it in love. We need not to minimize the stunning grace of God who seeks to save his very enemies. I knew a bunch of people at Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, who were true believers, who loved Jesus with all their hearts. Out of the liberal tradition, they were saved, and they stayed there to be a witness to the truth in the heart of liberalism in California. People can come to Christ out of this, and we need to have that hope and have that heart and have that prayer life. So again, I'm saying, let's speak the truth. But let's pray hard that God would save his enemies. Let's not harden our hearts against those who are enemies of God because guess what? Newsflash, we were all enemies of God at one point. Before we were saved, every one of us was just as much an enemy of God and he saved us in his mercy. Jesus will not submit to the molding of other people who wanna make him into what they want him to be. He will not. Instead, he will bear witness to the truth and he will seek to save the lost until he comes again. We need to keep both things in mind. Now you know as well as I do that not everyone who misrepresents Jesus hate him. There are many people who, like Pilate, even have a kind of fear of him but they have to figure out what to to do with him. They can't really get around him but they gotta figure out what to do. So they paint him as some kind of prophet of God. How many people have you heard say nice things about Jesus? They just don't believe the things that he says. They won't submit to his teaching. They won't really listen to the heart of what he's about. But oh, what a great man he was. What a prophet he was. Some say that he's a a good and kind and a helpful teacher, and you should put his teaching along the Buddhas, along with the Buddhas, and along with so many other teachers that have come throughout the centuries. Some say that he was a tremendous lover of the poor a lover of the downtrodden of society, a person who was so selfless that he actually gave his life for other people. However, he understood that they just see him as a great example. And the problem with all this is there's truth to it. He was a good prophet. He was a good teacher. He was a giving person. He did love the poor. He did seek to touch those who were in need. All that's true, but there's so much more that's true. And what I'm saying here is there's a lot of people who actually don't hate Jesus they are just trying to minimize him. They're trying to put him into categories that make sense to them and that, that works for them. And just as Jesus did with Pilate, he does with people like that today. He will not be pressed into our molds. He will not. He will not submit to the categories of the earth in order to identify himself. He will not do that. He is who he is. He is the truth. And his utter commitment, the reason he came to the earth and the reason he's still working in the earth is to bear witness to the truth. That's who Jesus is. And as I said earlier, if we're all being honest, I think that we all need to admit that we essentially do the same thing to Jesus to this day. Do we not? Even believers, that's what I'm talking about now, do we still not tend to put Jesus into our molds? And I see at least two reasons why we do it, as I said earlier. One is because he's so great that we just have to find ways of understanding him. I was thinking about it earlier this week. It's like the universe, you know, because of Hubble Telescope, and now there's another generation of massive telescopes that'll probably even teach us more. But because of Hubble Telescope, we're pretty sure that there's over 100 billion galaxies in the universe, It would take, for a small galaxy, it'll take you 10,000 years at the speed of light to get from one side to the other. Think about that. There's 100 billion of these things all throughout the universe. Can you get your mind around that? Honestly, this has been a hobby of mine since I was a little kid, and I just cannot take in the enormity of the physical universe that we live in. So how am I supposed to understand the God who created it with his fingers and holds it in the palm of his hands? There is a sense in which we reduce God because we're just trying to understand him. But we need to challenge our assumptions, beloved, by reading the word of God and letting the word of God define him to us rather than us defining him to himself. We need to allow Jesus to bear the truth in our lives. And I do think that there are times in our lives where we make Jesus into the kind of savior we want because the truth is we love our sin and we love our lifestyle. We want our God on our terms. We want to deal with him on our terms. We want to deal with the church on our terms. We want to deal with the lost on our terms. We want to deal with everything on our terms. So we'll just make Jesus into a nice domesticated savior and we can have the hope of heaven. Oh, that God would reveal and root that garbage out of our hearts today, that he would do that. Calvin, John Calvin said something very insightful. He said that our hearts are idle, making factories, factories, We're so prone to make idols. Be careful of how you are making an idol of God. I know that I am. In preparing this message, God has deeply convicted me about some things and I just wanna give myself to him and say, Jesus, bear witness to who you are in my life until I come into full conformity with who you are. Bear witness to who you are. And so let me pray for us now that God would do that kind of work in our lives, that he would patiently Uh, deal with us, that he would faithfully represent himself to us and shape us into his image. Oh, Father, I thank you so much for who you are, and I thank you for what you have done in Christ. I thank you for sending your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I thank you that you sent him to bear witness to the truth, and I thank you so much, Jesus, that you would not bow to the categories of the world's, I thank you so much that you would not be pressed into the mold of people who hated you or others who just had to figure out what to do with you. And I thank you that you will not allow yourself to be pressed into our mold either, but you'll continue to bear witness to who you are until we bow. So I pray, Father, again I pray that you would patiently do this work in us, and I thank you for what you will do. Father, we rise now to sing your praise with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength in Jesus' name, amen.